Hello and welcome to the download. I'm your host, Dave Richardson, and it's Stu's Days, except wait a minute. This, that, that's, that's not Stu that I'm looking at on my screen. That's Canada's hardest working economist. Are you even taking over for Stu now, uh, Eric LaSalle's? I guess. I don't know. You tell me. I, I, I can talk about stocks and valuations if you like. Well, we're, we, maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll stick with the economy. Okay. You don't have time to worry about uh, individual stocks and that. You're, uh, you, you've got too much economic stuff coming out. Because it's, uh, you, you know, you, you'd, think, you'd think that the summer would kind of quiet down a little bit, but it, it never seems to, eh? It's just always, there's always something going on. Yeah, boy, tell me about it. Yeah, this has been about the busiest year. I can't say on memory since 2020 was not exactly a sleepy year either, but uh, th there's a lot going on. You're absolutely right. I'm sure we'll get to some of those things. Uh, uh, absolutely. And uh, and again, no one uh, no one uh, covers it better. So so let, let, why don't we start with the uh, we, we we were uh, we were hoping to connect on Friday, but uh, we were unable to. And uh, the the U.S. jobs report is out. Any anything surprising or interesting there that uh, that you take away? It, it seems to me that the big takeaway is just that the labor market is still, for the moment, mostly holding up. I, I, I do emphasize mostly in the sense that when we look at maybe the periphery of employment indicators, we can see jobless claims that aren't quite as low as they were and some slight evidence of more layoffs. And I guess anecdotes in the tech sector in particular of, of, of downsizing and that kind of thing. But when push comes to shove and, and you get a you know, big uh, U.S. payroll number, and it's 315,000 jobs created, which was you know, in the realm of what was expected and and pretty good in an absolute sense, uh, you, you have to walk away and say there's no evidence of an economic collapse at this point in time. You, you can maybe split hairs and say there were you know, 107,000 downward revisions to prior months. And so maybe that made the prior months not look quite as good. And yeah, the unemployment rate went up, which I guess maybe might have been a red flag for a lot of people. It went from 3.5 to 3.7%, but it was really only because more people decided they wanted to try and get a job, which is uh, not necessarily a negative interpretation. So I walked away with the conclusion that the U.S. labor market's still mostly holding together. And uh, really, what's interesting right now uh, is that when you start with confidence metrics, we've seen really a, a collapse over the last you know, six yeah. months or so. So very low levels of consumer confidence, business confidence, and so on. You then kind of step or take a half step forward and say, what about intentions? And you see consumers saying that you don't really want to spend that much now and businesses suggesting their CapEx plans are getting scaled back and maybe their hiring plans getting a little scaled back. So we're seeing you know, a bit of caution in the intentions, not to the extent the, the confidence numbers would suggest, but... Uh, but some caution. And then you get to the real economic data, the actual activity data, and again, a slight decline, but it's actually been pretty resilient so far. So I think at this point in time, the debate is, is it just a timing issue where you're going to get the weakness in the real economy a bit later? Or is there some secret pocket of resilience that no one quite fully understands that is, is coming to the fore? And I think it's, it's more likely a timing issue. But you know, I will admit, for instance, uh, Dave, over the last month or so, I think I was talking at one point, you know, 80% chance recession risk yeah, over yeah. the next 18 months. I've been saying 70% chance now. So you know, a few things have gone a little better than we'd expected. And you know, a, a different way of framing it, by the way, and we have a lovely little chart that I guess no one gets to see here, but nevertheless, a lovely chart that will make its way into a macro memo in the not too distant future. Just looking at soft economic data versus hard. So soft really meaning surveys and things, uh, hard meaning the actual activity. And you know, soft data has come down quite a bit. 
hard data has softened, but not nearly as, as much. And so normally those two things look similar. So I think we could get some more hard data weakness, but not that evident in the US numbers. And then by the way, we don't have, at least as we record this, we don't have the Canadian job numbers for August yes. yet. Those come out at the end of this week. Uh, and the expectations a small gain. Canada actually lost jobs the prior two months. And so I think it's one of those things in which probably the Canadian labor market is moving a little less quickly, but but not obviously to a point where it's losing jobs every single month. Yeah, and, and you raise a really good point, uh, well, a lot of good points on the economy, but a really good point about uh, people who, uh, who really like to listen to Eric on this podcast. Uh, Eric has a lot of content that comes out in social media. Uh, so, uh, so watch for him on, uh, on Twitter, et cetera, uh, because he's got lots of, uh, lots of stuff coming out, out on a regular basis, including that uh, fantastic macro memo. Uh, one of the things you touched on uh, was, was a number that I'd seen or basically I overheard it as, as, I, as I was watching TV the, um, on Friday. And this is about this labor participation that we actually did see some younger people and some older people kind of come back into the, into the, into the job market. What do, you, what do you make of that? Do you think this is a trick? Because we've been hearing about all of this, uh, you know, great retirements and, 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 and the, the impact that different government programs have had. Uh, and, and it certainly kept the labor market very tight. Is, is that actually some good news maybe, or are, the, are those numbers so small that it doesn't even matter at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think in general, the default assumption is that when the labor force participation rate's going up, so more people either looking for jobs or working, it's generally thought to be a good thing. As I mentioned earlier, that seems to be why the unemployment rate went up, just more people now looking. They don't get counted if they're not looking. And so I, you know, at worst, kind of a benign interpretation, maybe an optimistic one. Um, it's a bit tricky right now, though. So I will say that I can think of kind of good and bad reasons why more people are maybe trying to get jobs. So the you know the good reasons would normally be that hey the economy is looking pretty good and you know companies are hiring and paying higher wages. Like get me in there. This is like I, I I'm now no longer indifferent to working. I would like a job because the salary is attractive. Uh, and so I'm sure that's part of it. Uh, I, I would equally say though uh, that you also hear anecdotes and maybe now it's it's outright evidence of of people, of course combating high inflation and suddenly finding they don't have the, you know, the retirement savings, for instance, that they thought they would have uh, versus costs. And so they're being forced back in out of necessity and, and maybe single earner families now requiring two earners and these sorts of things. And so uh, that's a less happy, uh, I guess, m motivation uh, to the extent that companies have a lot of jobs outstanding. I guess it's still a, a good thing. It, it, it means that, you know, there are more prospective workers who might be able to to fill those roles, but there might be a little whiff of desperation beneath the surface as well in terms of people's who financial circumstances have changed as rates have gone up and oil and gas and food and all those things. Yeah, it, it's interesting because one of the groups that's coming back to work are, are people aged 60 to 64. Um, was 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 what was in the data. So um, one of the, one of the the advantages I have, everybody, people have to, uh, to to look on 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 social media for your content or listen to the podcast. Uh, I get your macro memo right into my inbox, and uh, the the headline on mac on the macro memo is inflation has peaked, and uh, so so you you've been you you've been kind of there uh, as we've been talking the last couple of months, but. Uh, are, are you feeling a lot more confident that we've seen the, the worst of inflation 
Uh, and and we'll, we'll get into some of the issues around what's going to happen with energy through the winter, mm. uh, the, the the job market continuing to be tight, as we've just talked about. But but you're feeling better about where we are with inflation. Yeah, feeling better. I will confess I did debate that title. It is factually correct in the sense that July inflation <laughs> in the U.S. was lower than June inflation. Therefore, June inflation was a peak. I, I guess you could yeah. maybe debate whether it is the peak and whether there's a happy, you know, monotonic decline from here. So maybe there's a bit of ambiguity still in that. But let, let's start with what we do know, which is that certainly in the month of July, inflation came in a lot cooler. And so after uh, you know, a year of, of, of monthly gigantic price increases. We didn't get any price increase at all in July. In fact, the U.S. it was a very slight drop. Um, August, in very similar narrative in Canada, uh, August looks like it's also a fairly soft uh, inflation month. Now, I must confess, much of that is being informed by the fact that gas prices were lower, you know, at the end of the month than the start of the month. And so uh, there's no great uh, deep insight into that. But um, it does. It seems, I guess, visually that we're getting a bit of a turn. As you know, we run the scorecard that includes, I'm forgetting exactly how many indicators, but, you know, to 10 to 15 indicators. And uh, a lot of those have been turning. So that is to say, it's not just consumer prices that turned, it's you know, producer price index that turned and, uh, and, uh, and inflation surprises that are starting to turn and things like that. So we, we do think there's some, uh, some backdrop or some basis for that claim. Um, and then I guess the thing that makes me most optimistic that inflation has indeed truly peaked in the most, you know, uh, aggressive interpretation of, of that uh, claim uh, is just that we've always thought there were four big theoretical drivers of inflation over the last couple of years. And, and all four of them have turned in various ways. And so, you know, monetary stimulus, fiscal stimulus, supply chain problems, uh, and, uh, and I suppose, last but not least, a commodity shock. And you know, monetary stimulus is absolutely turning. We've got a Bank of Canada decision tomorrow as we record this. I don't know what day that'll be when it comes out, but that looks like yet another big rate hike. And so that's that's you know, part and parcel to that story. And many central banks are removing stimulus there and indeed are now reaching neutral levels. So you can say not just stimulus is going away, but stimulus is gone. And soon yeah. outright restraint will be there. Um, the fiscal policy is a bit trickier. And I know, you know there have been interesting developments recently and countries are spending some money and we are getting uh, say in a European context, some some relief bills being put into place to save people a bit of money on their exorbitant energy costs on, on that continent. Um, but but still, fiscal policy less generous than it was. It is a net fiscal drag. That's pretty clear. Uh, and then you know, commodity shock. Well, that's the one that you could speak maybe with least confidence that it will keep going in this direction. But certainly, commodity prices are down from where they were. You know, natural gas, you have to set aside because there's, of course, a very real scenario in which it gets worse. And indeed, it seems the worst case scenarios just keep happening for natural gas in particular. Um, and let's admit oil just saw an OPEC cut. And so, again, no, no promise that we see happy declines uh, persistently from there. But nevertheless, you know, oil prices are a lot lower than they were. That's helping quite a bit. Uh, I don't know that too many people are expecting oil prices to, to scoop back into the triple digits, let alone well into the triple digits. And then, you know, food prices, uh, certainly the base material inputs like uh, corn and wheat and things have come down a lot. Uh, base metals prices are collapsing at this point in time. It seems to me there has been a turn. And you know, a big part of it is that China is moving more slowly. A big part of it is just the global economy is expected to be weaker, which is bad for demand for things, including for commodities. And to me, that feels like the right call. And so I think it makes sense that commodity prices are down. And of course, I, I'll, I'll pair out the old line that you know, we don't need commodity prices to fall from here. We just need them to not go up and you get rid yeah, of yeah. the inflation. And so you don't need to have a big, bold call that oil is going to 50 or something to, to have less 
inflation over the next year. And then, sorry, I'm going too long, Dave, but the fourth item, supply chains, we are seeing pretty impressive improvements on the supply chain front. And so you can say that in terms of classic metrics, like how much does it cost to ship a container or how long are ships waiting at port? And so those are kind of the conventional measures. Um, but we can also say the computer chips were a big pinch point. And you now see plenty of claims from plenty of both chip makers and chip buyers that they are now getting access to what they need or demand is, is softening. And maybe some of it is a crypto bust. And some of it is people finally got that laptop they needed for school. And some of it is just there was maybe a little too much investment in capacity going forward. But bottom line is that's one that feels quite credible to say it has improved and it probably should keep improving, particularly if the economy continues to soften. So I walk away saying theoretically, yes, inflation should have peaked and we should see less intense inflation going forward. You still have to grapple with the wage pressures, which also should start to, to ease. In fact, we see a bit of evidence they are, but nevertheless, that could be a second round force. I make no promises that 2% is in the immediate future for inflation, but uh, I, I do think that maybe we'll look back and say that uh, that that June month was ultimately peak inflation. And and um, and, and, and so since since our last discussion, uh, we had the, uh, the Jackson Hole speech from uh, Chair of the Fed, uh, Jerome Powell, where, where he got... Um, he used the word pain in describing what we were going to go through economically uh, because they're going to have they're going to raise rates until they don't have to anymore. And I, I believe the line you've used is, you know, they, they, they may break something, uh, which means the, uh, the, the, the positive growth in the economy. Where where do you think, given this, since, there, you know, again, you look at that the data and you just went through all those key drivers of inflation and how, how things have really changed over the last three months and changed significantly, H how much longer and how high are they going to need to go with rates in, in, in your view? Right, yeah. I know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. You could say all is equal. They should have to do a little less than maybe they thought they had to do as of a few months ago to the extent inflation's behaved a bit. But um, I, again, they're just going to err on the side of doing too much as opposed to too little. They, they, they can't get this wrong in terms of letting inflation persist. And so I, I think they're going to perhaps overdo it, I guess, in that sense, which is which is part of the recession story. Um, you know, and keep in mind, not, not to circle back to inflation with, with too much uh, obsessiveness, but I guess it is an important topic. But you know, keep in mind, we have a, there's such breadth to inflation right now. So many things are going up. And so it's nice that the cost of a computer chip is a little lower and the cost of, uh, of, of gas is cheaper. That's certainly been a, a big one I've noticed in my own pocketbook. But, uh, you know, so many other smaller items are just still surging ahead. And so they're just they need to do enough really to get everybody's attention, not just my attention and professional economist who tracks inflation, not just our listeners attentions who are tracking all sorts of market things and think a little bit about inflation. We need to get, you know, your retired parents attention as well. And, and you know, small businesses attention. And all of that does require a bit of a monetary shock. And so I, unfortunately, there, there's some extra work to be done, I think. And, you know, based on what markets are pricing, I guess you could say, uh, after inflation seemingly started to ease, markets were thinking, oh, maybe they only have to go to, you know, three and a quarter, three and a half percent for a peak policy rate. And after the Jackson Hole speech and, and that kind of thing, you're now seeing markets saying, OK, maybe they're going to go to four percent again, which had been the thinking maybe earlier in the summer. And it's kind of back to where the thinking is now. And so a, a high three number is, I think, what we're guessing right now. But but the market is pricing in something like a four percent peak policy rate. And uh, and, yeah, you know, central banks often have to uh, sugarcoat their message a little bit.
bit. You know, if, if they're seen to be predicting a recession, then it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And really only the Bank of England has been bold enough to, to explicitly forecast such a thing, I think, because it's such an inevitability for the UK. But you're, you're seeing maybe the curtain pulled aside a little bit here in the US and they're recognizing, you know, you don't, you don't raise rates by 400 basis points in the span of a year and not you know, generate some pain. And you can see the pain in housing and and chances are the pain goes a little bit broader. I mean, I'll be honest, Dave, as much as I think recession is the most likely scenario, and certainly rate hiking like this is, is consistent with an outcome like that. Um, the thing that makes me most nervous, it, it would be if we didn't get a recession, but that's supposed to be a professional comment, which is I've been predicting it. If we don't get it, I look like a, a fool. But nevertheless, uh, I, I think the recession might just be necessary because we, we want to get that inflation tamed back down. And it's, it's a worthwhile sacrifice if we can get that prosperity rising again over the long run. And recessions are so inherently temporary. Yeah, and and just that you know we've talked about in 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 previous episodes where you know things kind of you know we we suppressed the global economy through COVID, then released it, and it just kind of shot back and overshot, and you you need it to kind of settle down and normalize uh, back to a nice base from which we can build, and that's what I like about. Um, you know, listening to you over over the months, you've been pretty consistent in that view that we need to get that nice stable base in place uh, for that next uh, period of economic expansion. And, you know, a recession may be the thing uh, that puts us in a position to have that nice base in front of us so we can grow. And that would ultimately be a positive thing because we, we got a little bit frothy, uh, particularly in markets and uh, over the, you know, as, as, as you go to the latter stages of 20, uh, 2021. That's right. So, so let's um, let's just uh, d- d- change change gears just a bit because um, you know one one of the things that uh, that, that caught my attention uh, reading the reading the papers this weekend is uh, is China and their COVID policy and and you know a, a, another twenty one million people locked down uh, because of the, the the policy there, which is you know a zero COVID policy and the you know the the potential for the implications for the global economy out of that you you've talked about you know perhaps they're going to revisit that policy I, I guess that's a crystal ball type of prediction but but if this continues isn't this going to is, is it going to have a fairly significant effect on the global economy yeah, I mean, it, it really is. So you're, you're certainly right. Uh, we seem to be back into another lockdown wave from China. And so on the one hand, you can say China is the most affected country in the world by COVID. On the other hand, of course, it's the least affected. It has almost no cases. It just has so little tolerance for them that it becomes so con- consequential. So yeah, the city of Chengdu has shut down, which is like a south southwest uh, in China, as you say, 21 million people. It's, it's a name probably a lot of people haven't heard before, and yet it's you know a city bigger than New York City. It's always amazing the scale China operates on. Uh, and so you know, China has long been very important to global growth. So let's, in fact, we were just looking at the numbers, and China generates a good one-third of global growth most of the time. In fact, it's been more than that over the last several years. Uh, and so it, it, it hurts everyone when the Chinese economy slows. The Chinese economy has slowed. I mean, we've been forecasting sub-3% growth for 2022, which is pretty unprecedented stuff, right? They've been growing 6 to 8%. It wasn't that long ago they were a double-digit uh, growth nation as well. And so this is this is a lot less. And you know, there are a number of things going on, and some of them are structural, like demographics, and some of them relate to the world shifting back to services and goods, which isn't great for China. And, you know, China doesn't like high commodity prices, and yet they're still pretty high, 
even as commodity prices have come down. Uh, but China's also done the corporate crackdown, the tech sector, and I think entrepreneurship is feeling a lot less entrepreneurial these days in China, uh, and the housing market is, is still wobbling. So plenty of problems, and then you just throw on top of that the, the COVID lockdowns. And so this seems to be the latest wave. I don't get the sense. Uh, I think they might have learned a few lessons from Shanghai, maybe both in terms of doing it efficiently and also not totally crushing the economy. And so I, you know, maybe I would say uh, a city like Chengdu probably doesn't have the same scale of consequences as a place like Shanghai. So I'm not looking for quite the same scale of, of implications, but still it means the Chinese economy is going to be slowing over the next month and a half. And uh, that means less Chinese uh, demand, which is why commodity prices go down. And it means uh, that it, yeah, it gets a little harder for the rest of us to get things as well. And so as we look at supply chain issues, more improving than getting worse, but every time Russia does something or China uh, locks down, that does, I guess, add, add a new complication, unfortunately. And so that that's where we are uh, right, right now. And uh, yeah, I mean, long-term China's going to continue to grow, continue to be a, a global economic superpower, which it has been now for a while, but uh, it's not moving very quickly right now. And, and even with a bit of a rebound that we're assuming next year, it's still going to be running well short of that 6% norm. And I'm just, I'm reading, we, we actually uh, have a giant econometric model here and it, it's uh, forecast for the next decade is 4.5% growth per year, which is great for yeah. countries not named China, but uh, yeah, a lot yeah, less yeah. than China's used to. And it's just getting uh, richer and slower and has a number of problems. And 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 where where else in the world does does that does the growth come from if if China slows now now I, I guess yeah. in four and a half percent of a much larger pie is is still a lot of growth that they're contributing to the to the global economy. Yeah, that's definitely part What's of the going answer. To emerge sure. next. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, like that was always the answer. As they slowed, they were still driving growth just as much, just a bigger base and a smaller growth rate, uh, which is still true. Um, well, I mean, we'll have to see. But I mean, it does feel to me as though India has turned a very important corner and they are picking up big time manufacturing and they fixed a lot of their infrastructure and banking issues and, and so on. And and so I'm, I'm hopeful that India can play that role. It has the population certainly to do it. It'll be the most populous country in the world, passing China in the next year or two. Uh, and so India has that scale. And then I suppose you look across maybe a set of Southeast Asian nations and you can maybe make an argument that when you lump them together, they start to approach a scale and they, they do have the dynamism necessary to, to, to fill that hole to some extent. But it's, it's going to be hard and it, it's still uh, we still think a, a, a slow long term growth environment for the world and, and China may be increasingly part of that story. All right, Eric. Well, let's um, let's stop it there. We were uh, we were going to talk a little bit about housing, but uh but we're a little over 20 minutes, so we'll, we'll, we'll pass that again for the second time in a row over to, uh, to, to the next one. But uh, a lot of great stuff there on, uh, on inflation, uh, what's happening in the job market, and then something I, th I think we're going to have to keep an eye on. I know you keep an eye on this very closely, which is why I, I kind of uh, blended into the, uh, to our discussions here, here and there is, uh, is China because of the, the importance in this, in this, uh, and of that economy. Uh, to global growth. So Eric, thanks uh, thanks as always for uh, for stepping in on Tuesdays and uh, and hopefully we'll be able to catch up soon. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye everybody. This recording has been provided by RBC Global Asset Management Inc. for informational purposes only and is not intended to be investment or financial advice. You should consult your own legal, accounting, tax, investment or financial planning advisors before engaging in any transactions.